Well, welcome. Glad you're here. We are going to talk about a difficult topic today, and I, I had forgotten that the lectionary reading today, uh, the first reading, was about this warning to teachers about how you're going to be judged separately. So I'm, I'm really sweating today on this one. But I want to start by just um, talking about this book. Um, I love this book. I think this is the most important book ever written. I think it's the single most important book you should read because um, I think it's vital. And I think all the clergy on our staff would say, we really, really, really want you to read it. I mean, that's part of why we're doing God's story and all these things that we're doing this year. But the truth is, if, if you were to pick it up and say, I've never read it, I'm going to read it cover to cover, it's going to be a hard go. And a couple weeks from now, we're going to talk about some ways to read it. So, so don't, please don't do cover to cover. But if you did, you wouldn't get into it very far before you'd be um, sort of cringing a little bit. Because there's some really hard stuff in the Old Testament. I mean, really hard stuff. And um, I think I, I told you guys a couple weeks ago that this latest round of reading the Bible, I'm always trying to read it. I decided to read it cover to cover. I've never done that. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but I decided that every time I got to a passage in the Old Testament where I was really struggling with it or saying, ooh, that doesn't sound like the God that I know, I kind of put a frowny face in the margin. And they, there's, there's a lot of frowny faces, quite a few. Today, we're talking about the frowny faces. That's what we're talking about today with this sermon. And we're, we're not going to talk about each one. We're talking about the category. And we're doing that as part of this sermon series that we've been, we're doing over six weeks where we're looking at the Bible. And we're trying to, to do a couple things. We're trying to address the questions people usually ask that you ask. We're trying to give you some tools to go into it. And then we're trying to give you a, a practical jump start into it. Those are the kind of the different things going on with the different sermons. But today we're going to go into this hard topic. And I want to start by saying, if you have been reading the Bible your whole life and you've never had an issue with violence in the Bible, by all means, really, honestly, tune out. I mean that seriously. Don't listen to anything I'm going to say because I'm afraid I'll stir something up. But for the rest of us, if you've, if you've sat there going like, oh, that really, I don't like that. That doesn't sound right or feel good or anything else. That's where we're going today. And this is a topic that is really uncomfortable and we don't like talking about it. In my life, I've heard two sermons on this topic and I preached one of them. <laughs> my goal today is, are two things. I really want to, if, if you struggle with this, I want you to know you're not alone. And then I want to give you some ideas to think about and meditate as you deal with these, some of these hard passages. That, that's where we're headed. And the very first thing I want to do is just uh, give a sense of perspective to it, right? Because... You know, sometimes people want to say um, there's this mean, angry, vengeful God of the Old Testament. And there's this loving, wonderful God of the New Testament. And like, how do you, what do you do with that? But that itself is overly simplistic. Uh, you know, I mentioned last week that um, the Protestant Old Testament has about 23,000 verses in it. Um, these frowny face pr verses are about 200 something like that, maybe a little bit over 200. So think about that in perspective, right? 23,000 verses, we're talking about 200. And there certainly is God's love, mercy, and grace in the Old Testament. But, that is, but there's still these problems, right? You read some of these real zinger verses, and you're like, ooh, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. And it's a common question. People, thinking people who read the Bible have this question a lot. 
and, um, and it's difficult. Enough that it gets asked around. Um, a number of years ago, I came across this article from, I don't know how many of you have ever read The Onion, which is this deeply satirical um, newspaper out of Chicago. And I think maybe now they're just only online, but they're, they're, this was the article, and I'm going to read part of it. Um, the headline was, God Diagnosed with Bipolar Disorder. New Haven, Connecticut, in a diagnosis that helps explain the confusing and contradictory aspects of the cosmos that have baffled philosophers, theologians, and other students of the human condition for millennia, God, creator of the universe and longtime deity to billions of followers, was found Monday to suffer from bipolar disorder. The Reverend Dr. J. Henry Jurgens, a practicing psychiatrist and doctor of divinity at Yale Divinity School, announced the historic diagnosis at a press conference. Quote, I always knew there had to be some explanation, Jorgen said. And after several years of patient research and long sessions with God the Almighty through intercessory medium of prayer, I was able to pinpoint the specific nature of his problem. He goes on to say, uh, sorry, um, evidence of God's manic depression can be found throughout the universe, from the white-hot explosiveness of quasars to the cold, lifeless vacuum of space. However, theologians note humanity's exposure to God's affliction comes primarily through his confusing propensity to alternatively reward and punish his creations with little rhyme or reason. It goes on. It just has a lot of fun with this notion before they pick up even talking about Scripture. But we see a little bit of that, right? I mean, it's a funny story. It's meant to be humorous and satire as it is. But behind it, like a lot of jokes, there's some element of truth of how we experience things and how we think about it. And you know, I don't want to dwell on it, but just think about it for a minute. I'm just going to give a few examples from the Old Testament for a minute. We think about capital punishment for a minute. You know, in our society, places like Texas, we have capital punishment for murders. But you go read the Old Testament, there's capital punishment for a lot of stuff. Some of which I don't want to say, I'm going to skip the first one for tender ears in the room. But like the, the second one, um, Exodus 35, has the capital punishment for working on the Sabbath. How many of us in the room have never worked on the Sabbath? I mean, death penalty. Or um, Deuteronomy 23, uh, or sorry, 22, death penalty for premarital sex. I won't, I'm not going to ask. Um, <laughs> but there are all these different, seriously, th I mean, there are things that we're like, what? Death penalty for that? And then you start looking at some of the passages that kind of go into what we would call the wrath of God. I mean, you think about, I think to me, the one that really stands out is where you, you've got Moses up on the mountain for 40 days and nights, and the people come to Aaron and say, we need something tangible. And he makes, he said, well, give me all your gold, and he melts it down, and he makes a golden calf, and most of y'all know that story. But I don't know if you remember what happens next, because after, you know, Moses had this inner exchange with God up on the mountain about it, but he comes down, and he sees all this, and he says, look, God's commanded this, strap on your swords, I want you who are loyal and listen to this and hear this. I want you to put on your sword. I want you to go from gate to gate through the camp killing your neighbors, your brothers, your sisters, your friends. And, and this happens. And the 3,000 people die this day. And, and just kind of hold that for a minute, right? Hold that right there. And then contrast that for a minute with the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. That son has gone off and done things that would be worthy of the capital, capital punishment under all this stuff. And you get this image of the father who is, sees him coming and runs 
and embraces him and get him a ring and bring him the clothes and let's have a party. He's, I mean, like you get this sense of how much God loves and wants people to be right there with him. And you compare these two and you're like, what do we do with this? And all that's before we come to the genocide. Then we start talking about the promised land, right, in the Old Testament. And you get um, there, Cana was a really, it wasn't one nation, it was a bunch of city-states, like 30-something city-states. And God winds up the people of Israel to go into these places. And, you know, we're in vacation Bible school and we love the story of Jericho. We're playing our trumpets around the walls and they fall and all this. But do you, we never read what happens next. Every breathing thing. Women, children, infants, every donkey, sheep, every breathing thing, gone. And you're like, Ugh. and you contrast that with the New Testament. Again, to go back to it for a second, you get all of Jesus' teaching about love. You get when he, when he finally gets asked to summarize all those 23,000 verses, he comes back with two things. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then later he's going to say, love your enemies. He's going to go on. He's going to say, you know how people should know who we are? They should know who we are as Christians by love. Later on in, one, in 1 John, we're going to hear God is love. And you get all this and you're holding these two things. If you're a thinking person, and you're like, what do I do with this? That's where we're going today. And um, I wish we had read a, a different reading than the first one about the teachers. But um, I'm going to say a couple things. First of all, um, the church doesn't have a doctrine on this. Like there's no one doctrine that says this is how you have to believe it. There's no dogma doctrine that's a set way on this. But what I want to do is just give you some ideas of what people have done with this through the ages. And, and so that you can have things to meditate as you think about these and I think we'll say, I'm going to say this many times today, but it's really important that we read the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, for all that's there. But, it's, but we've got to deal with these passages, right? And the very first thing that I would say, one of, the, one of the ways I'm going to take off the table before we even get going, goes back to the very early church, second century. You get this character in the church, Marcion, who says, oh, I've, this is a real problem. He sees it. Second century. This is a real problem. His answer is to say, well, this is easy. There's two gods. There's a God of the Old Testament. There's a God of the New Testament. We need to throw out the God of the Old Testament. And it's all about the God of the New Testament. And in fact, the New Testament, we need to redact and edit, edit it a little bit. And the church said, okay, wait a minute. When you talked about sacred scripture to Jesus, he was unrolling the scrolls and reading the Old Testament. When he's tempted in the desert, he quotes scripture back. When he went to every synagogue, he read the Old Testament with authority. We are not getting rid of the Old Testament. And if, if the Old Testament taught nothing else, it was that there's one God. So we're not doing that. And they went to, on to say, Marcion, that this is heresy, what you're doing. So we know, however we're going to sort through this tension, that's not going to be the answer. We know, we know that's, that's not an option. So I'm going to present four different options that we can look at. The first of which, I'm going to jump ahead all the way to the Reformation, to John Calvin. And John Calvin, in the 16th century, he had this doctrine that was known as accommodation. And, and what, what accommodation said is what every good speaker knows, is when you're speaking to an audience, whatever, you got to know your audience and you're going to present to them. 
And this is kind of saying that's what God does. So if God shows up to talk to an audience and there are a bunch of primitives, brutal people, he's going to speak in their language. And so when you read these gruesome, brutal things he's doing, it's because he's trying to connect with an audience of the time. That's where they were. And part of what's behind it is an idea of progressive revelation. God gives humanity what they can handle at that time as they continue to progress. He's, he's continuing to reveal as he goes along, as, as basically as humanity can handle it in ways that they can do it. And, and sort of the, so the way this would work out would be like this. If you think about um, where people were in, at a lot of times in the Old Testament, it was a brutal society, right? If you go back and read the story about King David with Bathsheba, if you'll remember how all that goes in Uriah, part of that verse in telling that story says, it was the time when kings go to war. Like, it's not no big deal. Like, it's spring. It's time to go fight somebody. That's where they lived. And so God is, when God's communicating with this group of people, he's going to communicate on those terms. And all he's trying to get across under this sort of theory in the, in the Old Testament is that there's one God, that he's a jealous God, he wants loyalty, and that something is coming down the road where things are going to change and you're going to go deeper. That's it. So that's kind of, that's the way to view that. And then you get to the New Testament and it continues along. Jesus is going to say he's there to fulfill it. That you've heard it said, you're not, you're not supposed to commit adultery. I'm saying don't lust. You've heard it said this, I'm going to say this. He's taking it to the next level. So that's, that's one way to look at it. That's the doctrine of accommodation. The next way to look at it, I think is the most common. Although people don't like saying it. And that is to ignore it. This is where you, you, you sort of maybe privately to yourself acknowledge that this stuff is there, but at a practical level, you ignore it. You don't put it in the lectionary. Don't make those priests deal with those hard verses. Thank you. And just ignore it. I mean, it makes me think, for those of y'all who did pub theology with us this past summer, um, I'll tell you a story of many years ago. I had this brilliant, brilliant Old Testament scholar that I invited to come to pub, a version of pub theology and speak on this issue. He spoke for 40 minutes and didn't answer the question. His, his sort of answer was, what problem? And people got really frustrated. We took our break and we came back from Q&A and people were submitting questions like, just answer the question. You know, how, what do you, he's like, it's the same God. What's the issue? He, he, he just, he, I don't know if he didn't see it or if he was in such deep denial but that's kind of this deal. We're, we're going to acknowledge it's there, but we're just going to do nothing with it. We're just going to sort of deny it, pretend it's not there. The third sort of way of going at this, I think, is, is maybe the biggest category. Maybe it's a shade of, the, of this one I just gave you. But it, it has to do with we're going to somehow walk with these two things knowing that they exist. And it depends on where you are maybe on interpretation. Because if you're a person who has plenary verbal inspiration, like you believe every word of the Bible is inspired by God, then you've got to hold on to every word. And so you're looking for ways to kind of hold these, and you're like, well, yeah, that sounds brutal, but it was a unique situation. It was God's chosen taking the land that was promised. It was this particular unique situation, or it was God needed to be crystal clear and set a really powerful precedent for everybody. Or it was that the Canaanites were so completely evil, the ones who were mature, they were so evil he had to do this. And all those who were innocent, the infants and all the others, well, they were going to be saved anyway. You know, there are ways that you begin to, you begin to think about that. Or you think, well, and this is true, that 
both the Old Testament and New Testament both have mercy and grace in them. They both have hard passages. They're not mutually exclusive. We're just going to walk with them. Or you might go another way and say that actually this kind of thing is required because, of God, because God's not just love and mercy and grace, but he's also holy. And so his purity and his holiness requires that this be done. So there are all kinds of ways to try to, um, to go that way. And for a long time, that's where the camp I lived in. I think, I think there, in, within our faith, we've got to always have a big place for mystery. And we have to acknowledge that our tendency, I'm not going to make any political comments today about how we do some of these things, but we like black and white. We like to have these really clear things. And we do that in our religion. We either want super black and white this way, saying, no, every word's inspired, da-da-da-da, or we want to go the other way and, and be crystal clear the other way. No, it's nothing, and, you know, whatever. But a lot of the faith we have is in mystery and nuance and complexity, and, and I think we have to live there. But So that's, the third approach kind of goes in headlong into all of that. The fourth and final kind of way to look at this is to go back and think about authorship that we started on week one with. And if you remember this, like there's not a theologian that I know of that would dispute that the Bible is written by, by God and by human authors. The question becomes, like how does that team work? So if you believe, again, that it's uh, dictated, which is like the Koran, so they, if you believe that God more or less dictated every single word, inspired it with this plenary verbal inspiration kind of thing, then you've got to hang on. You've, you've, you've got to believe that when God says, don't let any breathing thing live, that you, you've got to find some way to hold that. And, it, and, it, and it's tough, and we've talked about that. But if you believe that God really has this team of inviting these authors with their humanity to come into it and gave them some range of freedom where their personalities are coming into it, then you're like, well, they may have been inspired to reveal certain truths, but it's encapsulated in their time and in their own personalities and in their own beliefs, and all that stuff is coming out in here as well. So there are some passages that we're going to bracket. We're going to kind of hold in a different kind of way, right? And you think about all the different environments that they existed in. I was thinking about this um, as I was reading this and thinking about this um, stone that was found in a field in Jordan back in the 1860s. That This uh, stone was found. And this stone had this inscription on it. And it, um, it dates back, the scientists say that this stone dates back to 840 B.C. And the stone tells the story of the Moabite king who understands that the Moabite God is calling him to go attack part of Israel. And this is part of what the stone says. And this God is um, Chemosh. He says, And Chemosh said to me, Go take Nebo from Israel. So I went by night and I fought against it from the break of dawn until noon, taking it and slaying all 7,000 men, boys, women, girls, and maidservants. For I had devoted them to destruction for the god Ashtar Chemosh. This, this is kind of the environment. This is the, the context. And if you think about that for a minute, and if you say, well, Moses and Joshua and David are all these warriors, and maybe they're, they're inspired, they are inspired to reveal certain things, 
But God's giving them the freedom to put in there what they believe God's commands and actions and deeds would be. That's where we end up. That's, this, that's an interesting way to approach it. And I'm going to say a few more things about it. But, you know, for us, it, it, if you take a book like Joshua, which is probably the most violent book in all the Bible. It has a lot of great things in it that I think God clearly inspires, right? He, that book will tell you again and again that God's with you. Whatever you're facing, God's with you. And at the end of the book, you get this famous passage. You'll sometimes see it on people's um, entry mats to their house or a little plaque by the door that says, on this day, choose who, which, who, which God your family is going to worship. But for me and my family, we're going to worship the Lord our God kind of thing. That's a passage from Joshua. So if you threw it out, you'd miss all that. I think God inspires all that. But the question is, all this violence in the book of Joshua, is it just the context, like this Moabite stone, that these guys think that's what God wants? So do you have the ability to do it? Now we're into a whole other risk. Because now, if you're saying that, do you have the freedom then to say, well, I think this is from God and that one's not? A number of years ago, I gave a, a, a really hard, another really hard talk. This was on pub theology. I won't, I'm not going to go into the details, but, but I, I, it was the one time I had them set up two microphones and sort of more in my lawyer format maybe than theologian, I did a pro microphone and a con microphone on this, on this uh, topic. And to prepare for it, I got this book that was two biblical views of X, whatever this topic was. And when it came to these two biblical views, one of the biblical views, the guy said early on in his, his defending this position, he said, I think that we're gonna, we, we should read scripture where we only, we only take the verses that ring true. I was like, okay, well, this deal's over. I mean, you're, gonna, you're, gonna be, you're just going to say all the hard passages don't ring true. So that's the risk we run because then we begin to say, well, I don't like that. I, I really want to do what I want to do. And we don't like that passage. So what do, how do we weigh this? Well, this leads me back to the final thing that applies to all four of these things I've said. What is the ultimate revelation of God? It's not Scripture. The ultimate revelation of God is Jesus Christ. Scripture itself will tell us that. He, he is the word. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. If you want to know what God is like more than anything else, I wouldn't tell you to go read Scripture as Scripture. I would tell you to go read about Jesus. Like if, if somebody said, I'm going to read one book, I'm going to send them to the Gospels. That's why we treat the Gospels separate. Because Jesus is the ultimate revelation. So the, like uh, this pastor who I like, Adam Hamilton, says, we ought to use Jesus then as the measuring stone for everything. And he, he, just, he likes to hold up a colander and say, we're going to filter everything with this. So when you're reading the Old Testament and you get some passage that says, kill all these innocents, hold that up against Jesus and say, okay, I don't know how we're going to resolve this, these four different ways. But, but if I'm weighing these, I know I'm going with the way of love and what Jesus, the way Jesus embodies it because that's the ultimate revelation. That's the ultimate touchstone, right? That part's for sure. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind this thing up, but um, I know this is some hard stuff. I, my goal is to give you some things to think about and meditate. Know that other people struggle with this, and that's okay. Life is complex. We can do that. We can walk with these things. Keep walking with it. We want you to read this. I will tell you so emphatically that I believe you will encounter the living God in this. As the catechism of the prayer book says, um, we call it the Word of God because it still speaks. In a couple weeks' time, we're going to talk about how to read it 
in your, in your daily life. But keep reading it. We'll find God in it. But we have these hard verses. If you believe every word's inspired, we need to think about these ways of dealing with it. Of, you know, it was justified as unique situations. It was judgment. It was whatever. Or just saying, I don't know, but I'm going to live in the mystery and walk with them both. Or if you believe there's a little more humanity in the Bible, in the authorship, then maybe you're going to filter it a little bit and say, I think that, that was the humanity of the time or whatever it is. But always, always holding up Jesus as the ultimate. Keep walking, keep reading, keep praying. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you call us as your children um, to walk with you and to learn from you. And we thank you for the gift of sacred scripture. We thank you even for the passages that challenge us. And we pray you'd give us wisdom in dealing with them. And uh, you'd help us to keep walking and holding on to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.